You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. It's been an afternoon of more detours and delays on Vancouver Island this time, where supporters of Wet'suwet'en and hereditary chiefs who opposed the gasoline pipeline project shut down the Pat Bay Highway. It started this afternoon, but just about an hour ago, traffic started flowing again. Global's Brad McLeod has been covering the protest all afternoon for us. Brad, demonstrators packed up pretty much when they said they would. Yeah, that's right. They gave a window, and this has been uh, telegraphed for a couple days that they're going to be shutting down the Pat Bay Highway from 2 to 5. And when 5 came along, that's when they moved along. Now, it's important to note that this is a very important highway, Highway 17. Victoria is that way, and Swartz Bay and Sydney are that way. So a very important uh, artery for people coming from the mainland even. Now, here's what caused the delays today. Uh, a group of protesters made up of mostly people, indigenous people from tribes around the Saanich Peninsula. And they wanted to support hereditary chiefs in Wet'suwet'en. And basically they did that by shutting down traffic. Uh, traffic uh, during rush hour was detoured on rural roads, single lanes as opposed to this major highway with two lanes in most, both directions. Now, Central Saanich RCMP did get an injunction against the group but they did not act on it. They waited to see that everything went peaceful and said that they will act on it maybe if they didn't leave at five o'clock, but they did leave. Now, as for the disruptions caused by the protesters, here's what one of them had to say. Of course, everyone's gonna be frustrated. I mean, if the shoe was on the other foot, you know, we would be frustrated too, but at the same time, like people got to understand that, you know, this is ongoing, you know, and, and it's not going to end anytime soon, but, you know, we're still here and we're going to still keep speaking up until someone finally pays attention. Well, that wasn't the only protest in the capital region today, Brad. A group has been on the legislature steps as well since Monday. What's happening there? Yeah, that's right. It's important to note that in addition to this, there have been Indigenous youth at the legislature. Uh, as you said, they've been there since Monday. Uh, and there is that injunction. You might ask yourself, why was that injunction not enforced if they're back at the legislature? But you know what? They are not violating it. They are at the ceremonial entrances. They would be in violation of that injunction if they blocked entrances. But MLAs uh, have been able to come and go as they please, unlike what happened before when they were blocked there. But it is closed to the public. But uh, yes, uh, the demonstration, in addition to what happened here, happening at the legislature. And again, people on Vancouver Island probably want to know about the Pat Bay. As you can see behind me, Sophie, Chris, it's moving. Moving for now, at least. All right, Brad McLeod reporting from the Pat Bay Highway. And here's another demonstration. Several people arrested in Toronto after a protest blocked the busy Go Transit train line. Dozens of protesters set up a blockade last night in solidarity with the Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs. Early this morning, protesters were handed an injunction and police began removing them from the area. At least three people were arrested. Train service has since resumed. And fires were also ignited along railway tracks at a protest encampment in Belleville, Ontario. Police say the fires brought freight train traffic to a grinding halt. Firefighters were able to extinguish the flames and CN is now inspecting the tracks. 
Well, while pressure keeps growing for the federal government to bring about an end to the protests and blockades, the Wet'suwet'en and hereditary chiefs maintain their conditions must be met before they will come to the table. And there had been some hope today that a meeting would happen, but late this afternoon, that optimism disappeared. Here's Sarah McDonald. Initial signs of optimism and dialogue Wednesday in northern B.C. ending with no resolution as with Soda Nation's hereditary chiefs return to the table for another day of talks. Their willingness federally to come here is there and our hope is that today will be the day we, we can move forward. That this week have involved former longtime member of parliament Nathan Cullen acting as an intermediary between all sides involved in a standoff over pipeline politics. Leaving a nation divided. Conditions for meetings between Indigenous leaders and federal and provincial ones still not agreed upon. With Sowetan leaders maintaining an invite still stands. But that comes with a major caveat. Coastal GasLink and the RCMP must vacate what Sowetan territory first. These conditions, which uh, are good conditions, are very easy to reach. They somehow made it more difficult than needed, but they would be on the airplane immediately. The sense of urgency to reach a resolution steadily rising, along with growing unrest among opponents of the hotly contested natural gas pipeline at the center of all this, directly impacting the communities suddenly thrust into the international spotlight. There's quite a bit of division in the community that shouldn't shouldn't be. It never ever was like that. Many of those impacted, including Bonnie George, spending time in Terry Lynn Gillis's chair and just talking. I know lots of people who work for the pipeline who aren't working right now who, yeah, they're saying, what the haymaker? We were counting on this. Discussing all sides of a complex and multifaceted issue with social and economic implications and no clear solution. I'm hopeful there is a resolution, but a little bit of me feels like it's gone too far. Those blockades needed to be stopped long ago. The proposed project promising prosperity and supported by band councils and the provincial and federal governments. But not the traditional leaders who maintain their conditions must be met first before any talks with Ottawa. Sarah McDonald, Global News, Houston, B.C. And the string of protests blocking Hastings Street and the West Coast Express lately have caused major disruptions in the lives of tens of thousands of Metro Vancouver commuters. Now it's become apparent the protests are being organized by a handful of activists. They include a woman who isn't from B.C. or even Canada and a man who's well known in protest circles. Jordan Armstrong reports. She's been the face of several blockades and at least one occupation in Vancouver. Two weeks ago, Natalie Knight led the intrusion of the Attorney General's office in Kitsilano and at the time justified it this way. We are Indigenous people who've lived on this land for a very long time. But at Tuesday's blockade on Hastings Street, Knight clarified she's been in Canada less than a decade. Do you have any ties with the First Nation? Like, are you First Nations yes, or Indigenous? You are? Okay, well, can you tell us which band you're associated with? I'm Yurok from Northern California and Navajo from New Mexico. Oh, cool. So you're not Canadian? No, I'm not. Okay, so what brought you up here? I came here for school. In fact, she earned a PhD in philosophy and has been called one of Simon Fraser University's most outstanding graduate students. I've been here for eight years. Are you Canadian? I don't think I need to share my status with you. Okay. You know, it's, it's very misinformed. Liberal MLA Ellis Ross is a former elected chief of the Heisla Nation. I'm tired of First Nations just 
issues being used as political purposes for somebody else's agenda. Ivan Drury is a longtime protester, going back to at least 2002 and the three-month squad at the old Woodward's building in Vancouver. Social housing now! In recent years, he's been a central figure at tent cities in Nanaimo, Maple Ridge, and Vancouver as an activist with Alliance Against Displacement. We're live streaming. I'm here with Ivan. Last month, that group renamed itself Red Braid Alliance for Decolonial Socialism and claims to have initiated at least two rail blockades. Here was Drury and crew at the Valentine's Day blockade that shut down the West Coast Express. Here he was Tuesday, camped out on the tracks in Abbotsford. There's a bit of a focus on me and it's not a good thing, I don't think. We wanted to know how a group founded to advocate for housing has transformed. So we went by their office in Wally. Eventually, we reached Red Braid's Listen Chen by phone. Our feeling is that we don't want to talk to you on the record about that right now because it feels like uh, um, a distraction from the movement as a whole. A movement they don't want to discuss with the public as they continue to disrupt the public. Where are you going? Stay tuned. Jordan Armstrong, Global News. Caught on video, the police takedown of a suspect in a high-speed chase that spanned a number of Metro Vancouver cities and the Fraser Valley. Catherine Urquhart has the latest on a chase that began with a routine traffic stop. A police pursuit that extended for approximately 70 kilometers finally came to a conclusion here on the Capilano River Bridge in West Vancouver. It all started at about 1 p.m. in Abbotsford when police were doing a routine traffic stop. At that point, they noticed that a man had no insurance and was wanted on six outstanding warrants in another province. When they tried to take him into custody, he allegedly assaulted the officer and then fled, taking the officer's keys with him. Police then followed at a safe distance as the man traveled along Highway Number 1 westbound. And when traffic slowed here in West Vancouver, officers from several agencies were able to stop the vehicle and make an arrest. Traffic in the area came to a standstill as the man was cuffed and taken away in an ambulance. No word yet on any charges. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Vancouver police are releasing some new images of a suspect in the attempted theft of a float plane. Surveillance video shows the man walking around the Harbor Air seaplane terminal early Friday morning. Police say the suspect broke into the terminal and stole one of the planes. He tried to take off, but crashed it into several other docked planes. Police say the suspect is 5'10", with an average build and a slightly receding hairline. He was wearing a red zip-up sweater, dark pants, and dress shoes. He's believed to have working knowledge of airplanes, so anyone with information is asked to call Vancouver police. Loved ones of a missing New Westminster woman say they're frightened for her safety. Nirla Sharma was last seen Sunday night, and family and friends say her disappearance is out of character. As Grace Key reports, the Major Crimes Unit has now been called into the case. Vanessa Sharma is putting up missing persons posters around Queensborough and New Westminster in a desperate attempt to find her missing mother. 
Usually, if she leaves the house, she'll take a phone with her and she'll take ID with her. She didn't take anything. The only thing that was missing was her Apple Watch, which um, they've tried to ping nothing yet. 44-year-old Nurla Sharma was last seen around 9 o'clock Sunday night as she was heading off to bed at her home in the 300 block of Lawrence Street. Her two children and husband were home. At about 4 o'clock the next morning, Vanessa heard the front door open and she thought it was her mother. And I thought she was just taking out the dog because usually she wakes up around 4, 4.30 anyways to take out her puppy. Um, and then when my boyfriend left the house at 4.45, the door was still unlocked. So I thought she just went for a longer walk. But the dog was still at home. Sharma never showed up for work that morning. And now the new Westminster police are investigating. Totally out of the norm for her. Uh, the family is very concerned. Normally they would hear from her. Her employer would hear from her. Um, and for her to leave without any keys or money or access to money or phone, um, totally out of character. Police say there were no obvious signs of foul play and now Vanessa is making a plea for help. Because she's helped so many people, I hope the same amount of people come and help to come help her. Sharma is 5'3", with a slim build, about 138 pounds. She has several tattoos, an alms symbol on her left arm, a crown on her right wrist, a rose on her tailbone, and a design on her left ankle. She was last seen in pajamas and maybe wearing a black hooded jacket and orange Nike shoes. If you have any information or dash cam video of the area around the time of her disappearance, you're asked to call New Westminster Police. Grace Key, Global News. The man overseeing Surrey's switch from the RCMP to a municipal police force says the transition is likely going to take longer and cost more than the city's mayor has said. But speaking today to the Surrey Board of Trade, Wally Opal says a municipal force will be more accountable, at least, to the people of Surrey. I say that you're probably looking at a good two years, a good two years. Two years to hire a chief find officers, and get the Surrey Police Department up and running. If it finally does happen, it will cost more than the RCMP. Another Doug McCallum election promise left hanging. To actually see uh, that you're potentially looking at less officers for more money. Opal speaking at the Surrey Board of Trade, updating the progress of what a transition from the RCMP to a municipal force might look like. 400-plus pages detailing the pros and cons of any switch. You want to make sure that whatever is done is done correctly and the right way and according to standards. Every major metropolitan area in the country is served by a municipal police force. Surrey is the only exception. The mayor, who wasn't at the event Wednesday, says it's important to have local, civilian oversight of its own police force. Opponents like Councillor Linda Ennis questioning how more money for fewer officers benefits anyone. It's going to be shocking to the people how much this is going to cost. The transition cost alone, and this isn't to get uh, a cover the new cost of the police force is $129.6 million. Do you understand you have some petitions for us? We do. We do. We do. Thousands of people signed a petition that was dropped off at the cabinet office last week. One of the major concerns has been a lack of transparency. How do you expect to get the job done? These guys are just, you don't give them enough credit. They should be heroes. They should stay. Opal's report will be reviewed by former RCMP officer in charge, Brenda Butterworth Carr, and then forwarded to the Solicitor General. No timeline on when that report will be made public. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. It was a baffling phenomenon. Dozens of homes exploding almost simultaneously. Why the gas company is admitting guilt coming up on the news hour. And beyond the Blue Jays, why Major League Baseball in Vancouver 
is not as crazy as it sounds. That's later in sports. Right now, though, the latest news on the spread of COVID-19 is troubling, and it has this country's health minister offering some sobering advice to Canadians. For the first time since the outbreak began, the World Health Organization says the number of new cases outside China has exceeded the number of new cases in China. With Brazil confirming its first case, the virus has now hit every continent except Antarctica. Canada confirmed its 12th case today, and Federal Health Minister Patty Haydu says Canadians should be taking this outbreak seriously. Globally, there's a higher likelihood that we'll see an outbreak in Canada. It's really about, first of all, uh, making sure that you do have enough supplies. If someone in your family becomes ill, if you yourself become ill, that you have what you need to survive, uh, you know, for a week or so without having, without going out. Haydu says international travelers arriving at Canadian airports are being told to monitor their own health. However, she still says the risk of infection in Canada is low. Now, as COVID-19 spreads, a UBC researcher and his team are on the verge of a breakthrough in the worldwide race to stop it. And they have a major head start. After more than a decade of research into the SARS pandemic, they believe the drug they've created should work on the novel coronavirus, too. Linda Ellsworth shows us why and tells us when clinical trials will begin. It's been 17 years since the coronavirus that caused SARS spread across the globe. In Canada, hundreds were infected and 44 died. Toronto was particularly hard hit. You know, we were quarantined, so it was a really interesting experience, what the little virus can do to his whole city. UBC professor Joseph Penninger was working in Toronto when he discovered that a molecule he'd been studying for some time, ACE2, played a critical role in the spread of the SARS virus. We figured out that ACE2 is essential for the virus to enter cells. Once inside, the virus hijacks the cell to produce more viruses process that eventually kills the cell. By killing it, it starts inflammation and this of course leads to severe lung disease, lung failure, and it also spreads in other tissues. So we got to work creating a treatment that would block the virus's ability to enter the cell. He called it APN01. Testing showed it held great promise. And of course we wanted to develop it for the SARS outbreak and then of course SARS disappeared and nobody was interested anymore, really. But they're interested now because it turns out this latest coronavirus infects in much the same way. All the science tells us and all the experiments from my group and of course many other scientists in the world tell us this should be a rational therapy. Which is why they want to start human trials right away, in China, on patients with moderate to severe symptoms. But the process hasn't been easy. Actually, just to find an airplane which goes to to China to bring the drug was a nightmare for us. The first trial could start any day and will involve 28 patients, half receiving the drug, half a placebo. In four to five weeks, if all goes well, the trial would be expanded to include many more patients. We hope in three, four months we have significant data that it's working uh, or not working. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. The Osiris Indian Band is once again rolling the dice on building a new gaming facility in the South Okanagan. Plans to open a casino were shot down more than a decade ago, but now the band is gambling on a new proposed location. Global Shelby Tom reports. The Osiris Indian Band is betting on a new business venture. 
proposing to build an up to 7,500 square foot community gaming facility right here on reserve land off Highway 3, across from the Petro Canada gas station. People are coming to us and say it's a good place for a gaming center. The proposed facility will include up to 150 electronic slot machines, 100 bingo machines, an off-track bedding area and a restaurant. Not technically a casino, Louis says, because patrons won't be able to place bets on table games. Just slot machines, no gaming tables, no blackjack, no dice, no roulette. Slot machines. The band showing its cards to the municipal councils of Oliver and Asuyus within the past week seeking support. Both towns think they'll hit the jackpot with a possible increase in accommodation and food service revenues as well as overnight stays. It would be a boost for tourism in Asuyus because we are a resort municipality. However, local governments won't get a share of the gaming revenues generated because the proposed facility will be on banned land. We understand that the Asuyus Indian Band um, when they do things, they keep they keep the revenue. We are supporting it because we are right next door. Louis says it's early days with the project only at the feasibility stage. He expressed frustration. The plans were made public through the ACU's town council regular meeting. We just needed a support letter and I told the town, why don't you go in camera? This is such, this ain't even worth getting out in the news. He says there was no timeline on when the band could submit its license application to the gaming policy and enforcement branch. Shelby Tom, Global News. BC researchers say they found a way to solve a worldwide health care crisis, the critical shortage of radioisotopes that are used in tens of millions of diagnostic procedures every year. As Ted Chernecki reports, their system will allow hospitals to essentially make their own isotopes with equipment they already have. So this substrate right here is uh, for producing gallium-68. This inner circle, no bigger than a dime, can hold enough radioisotopes for the entire province of BC for a day. And most significant, a massive nuclear reactor wasn't used to produce it. Instead, UBC researchers are refining a way to use smaller particle accelerators, the kind found in many hospitals. And it's those hospitals that can produce on a daily basis if needed, on demand, the amount of isotope they need for patients on that day or for that week. As nuclear reactors age and become less reliable, so too is the traditional supply of isotopes. Shortages, as have occurred in recent years, can have a major impact on patients who rely on nuclear medicine to treat cancers and other ailments. If you suddenly have to, you know, for a day or two or three, you can't do the test because you don't have the supply, that causes a ripple-down effect on your waiting list. Nuclear radioisotopes with a very short half-life are injected into a patient. Chemicals carry the charged particles to that area of the body doctors want to examine. The energy emitted can be read by specific cameras, giving doctors an internal view of an organ that wouldn't otherwise be possible. X-rays, CAT scans and ultrasounds all send particles from the outside in. The thing about isotopes is it's from the inside out and what th that information is giving us is function. So it's telling us how well an organ or um, a uh, certain tissue is performing. The genesis of today's research rests at UBC's Triumph Particle Accelerator. Researchers there have now created a private company, ARTMS. It joins several other isotope research companies in the Lower Mainland. What they're doing is really interesting stuff. It's a, a great way to make it, they, rather than using a, uh, a byproduct of a nuclear reactors, now they're, they're using a cyclotron, which um, bombards a target and makes an isotope, um, which is really good because you can turn it on and turn it off. 
ARTMS technology is already in use in Zurich, the UK, Japan, the United States, and hopefully for shareholders soon in hospitals across Canada. Ted Chernacki, Global News. An American gas company is accepting blame for a series of pipeline explosions in Massachusetts. Columbia Gas will pay a $53 million fine in connection with the explosions in Merrimack Valley that killed one person, injured 25 others, and destroyed more than 100 homes and businesses. Victims of the explosions will receive $143 million from class action settlements after the company ignored safety protocols. Another mass shooting in the U.S. this afternoon. As many as seven people have been killed, including the gunman at a Molson Coors brewery in Milwaukee. Employees were notified by email that an active shooter was in the complex and a nearby school was put under lockdown. There are reports the shooter was a former employee who was recently fired. The grandfather of the 18-month-old toddler who fell to her death on a Royal Caribbean cruise ship is changing his plea to guilty. Salvatore Anello says he'll plead guilty to negligent homicide to allow his family to move on from the tragedy. Since the day 18-month-old Chloe Wiegand plunged 11 stories to her death last July, her grandfather, who was caring for her at the time, has said the fall out an open window on a Royal Caribbean cruise ship was an accident. Sam Anello plans to formally plead guilty to negligent homicide. His lawyer says he's reached a tentative agreement with prosecutors. In Puerto Rico, where Chloe died, negligent homicide is a misdemeanor, punishable by up to three years in prison. Anello, hoping for probation, releasing a statement. I was placed in charge of keeping my beautiful granddaughter safe, and I failed. Adding, he's changing his plea to guilty to try to help end part of this nightmare for my family. It really was a feeling that uh, if you could get a fair jury and you could go all the way through that he would be exonerated. It's very hard to love someone who's gone. We spoke with Chloe's parents in December. Have you had a voice here? We, we advised them that we did not want any charges brought on him and you know they went ahead with it anyways. Prosecutors say key to their criminal case, shipboard security footage. The family is suing the cruise line and civil court for negligence. Royal Caribbean has long maintained it was not responsible for the tragedy, which Anello says will always be a constant nightmare every day and every night for the rest of my life, adding, I love you and miss you, Chloe, beyond measure. Kerry Sanders, NBC News. In Health Matters tonight, researchers from the McGill University Health Center have developed a new way to test for concussion. It involves balance, and some are calling it a game changer that will help hockey players spend more time on the ice and less time recovering from injuries. I'm now going to test your balance. Please take off your helmet and gloves. Dr. Scott Delaney is trying out a new way to help hockey players get tested for concussions quick and efficiently. So we wanted to do something that would be faster for hockey athletes to assess their concussion balance. The emergency physician is part of the MUHC team, developing a balancing test that could be used to determine if a player has a concussion. It's done one day at rest and another day after practice when the players are physically more tired. So if I'm going to test you for a concussion, I need to know that the differences I see are not just because you're tired, but it's because you have a concussion. Dardine steals the puck. Here's the chance of the hockey. 
The head coach of McGill's women's hockey team calls it a game changer. Well, I think it's a step forward because I think that it, it provides efficiency and reliability. And those are two important factors in, in determining whether a, a player has a concussion. McGill's hockey teams are heavily involved and the players are loving it. After going through the, the test, um, our entire team, we were just so excited about it. We had never heard about it before and we, we were just so happy that something like that would come and progress for the concussion. Kellyanne LeCour has suffered three concussions as a player. She's impressed with the speed it takes to do the test. Especially for us in hockey, um, not having to take our entire equipment on makes all the difference because that, as we've seen, the test lasts for two minutes. Basically, it's the time you would spend on the bench between shifts. Dr. Delaney would like to expand this idea to other hockey teams and programs to enhance concussion protocols. If we can get it part of a Hockey Canada program, Hockey Quebec, through the different provinces, that's where we're going to make the biggest difference in terms of diagnosing concussions. And hopefully help players spend more time on the ice and less time on the injured reserve list. Kubino Duro, Global News, Montreal. After the forecast, movie superstar Chris Pratt has something in common with Mark Madriga. <laughs> it's not the way it was written. So many directions that could go. Yes, I'm, really I'm so curious now. Yes. We have to wait until after the forecast, though, for that one. Mm -hmm. uh, it looks so dark behind you. I know. I'm using a star background because I was going to attempt to explain to you what a leap year is. It's officially a leap year this year. So we have February 29th, which occurs on Saturday, and it only happens once every four years. I always love the idea. If, if you have a birthday on leap year, if you're born on February 29th, you get a birthday this year, which is nice. So what is a leap year? I'm going to attempt to explain to you it's basically the difference between a calendar year and the astronomical year. So a calendar year is officially and exactly uh, 365 days. We The Earth turns or rotates one day, uh, but the Earth actually goes around the sun in astronomical terms, officially 365.25 days per year. So that extra two point, or sorry, 0.25 is extra each year. So if you times that and do the math, times that 0.25 by four years, then you get one day. So in essence, it helps to uh, sort of balance out our calendar year with the astronomical year. So that one day, leap year, is actually there to save the day and balance things out. So every four years, that one day comes along and saves the day. Does that help explain it to you? You got it? All right. So rain expected to push in this evening. We've got another system on deck, one thing after another. So I'm going to attempt to explain that to you also. Starting off with the northern regions, rain for the northwest. Inland regions, though, fairly dry. Light showers or flurries, that's about it. You can see some nice breaks in through the Okanagan Valley. But for our region, we'll see rainfall overnight and tomorrow morning. Drier tomorrow afternoon. Here's where it gets complicated, everyone. So dry tomorrow afternoon and into Friday morning, then Friday evening the rain pushes back in into Saturday morning, then dry Saturday evening into Sunday. Did that explain it? Uh, officially, Whitecaps home opener at 7.30 though on our leap year day of February 29th. And I will leave you with your central windows weather window. I love this. This is an impromptu hockey game right out in front of the um, art gallery you can see there. They're even using a garbage can as the goal. <laughs> At the, can you see it just so under the Canadian. logo there? So West Coast, so Canadian. <laughs> it was like 25 degrees that day, too. Yeah, isn't it? Was a sharp so difference. Warm. Yeah, thanks very much, Christy. All right, we're accustomed to big Hollywood stars singing the praises of Vancouver on social media, but 
Another BC city, where Mark Madriga is from, is also getting the latest shout-out. Kamloops, British Columbia, is so beautiful. Good Lord, that sun, wow. I mean, Mark would probably say that he bears a striking resemblance to Chris Pratt. I bet he would. I don't know if that's necessarily <laughs> true, but Chris Pratt, the star of the Jurassic World and Guardians of the Galaxy movies, waxing rhapsodic on Instagram about the beauty of Kamloops. He's in the area shooting Jurassic World 3. This is great news for Kamloops tourism. Pratt has nearly 3 million followers. <laughs> Glad he is impressed. All right, you probably are noticing something about our wardrobes. Here's the theme. Mm -hmm. We called each other this morning. <laughs> and the rest of BC. A lot of people wearing pink today, all in the name of taking a stand against bullying. You can't bully others. you got to always be kind to others. Darn right, kid. This was the scene at the corner of Georgia and Granville this morning. Our community reporter, Michael Newman, just one of many celebrating CKNW Kids Fund Pink Shirt Day. This year's campaign urges Canadians to lift each other up and be a little kinder. Organizers say that in year 13 of the campaign, the message is finally starting to sink in for all ages. That's great. Mm -hmm. Thanks to everybody. And it's a who's darn good thing they chose that color and not green shirt day. That would not <laughs> work. Because for if us. they did, we would never have been able to participate. Right. Well, we could have. You just wouldn't see us. You just wouldn't see. <laughs> All right, Squire, what's going on with Jacob Marks? Well, let's find out together, shall we? <laughs> the uh, Canucks say Jacob Markstrom underwent a minor lower body procedure, which is really general. That could mean a lot of things, but I'm going to guess his lower body part that was worked on was one of his knees. It's just a guess. Whatever the case, they say they will now know in two weeks how that procedure went. And at that point, they'll know how much longer Markstrom will need to recover from this injury. But if you count two weeks from now, I think that means he'll miss seven Canuck games. Likely more. Tomorrow, the Canucks are in Ottawa. That's the game they should win. Uh, after surviving a cardiac incident in a game on February 11th, St. Louis Blues defenseman Jay Bowmeister says he will not play the rest of this season or the playoffs. But that's as far as he's going to go when it comes to decisions with his future. What's important right now is he's alive and he's feeling better. Yeah, that's kind of the, the weird thing about this whole thing is you go from uh, something that happened totally out of the blue and unexpected to uh, being in the hospital for a couple of days. And then now there's some restrictions as to what I can do, but uh, feel pretty normal. So it's... It's a good thing. You notice the picture of BC Place is pink? I notice. See mm -hmm. that? Uh, there was a story in the Athletic Online sports paper that the Arizona Diamondbacks have twice taken a look at BC Place in the past couple of years to see if they could maybe move games here if they have any problems with their field, Chase Field, which isn't one of the best stadiums in baseball. Now, this is true, but it doesn't mean anything is imminent. Las Vegas also talked to the Diamondbacks about playing games there. Arizona would prefer to stay in Arizona should they need a temporary stadium or a new one altogether. Now, the dream of baseball at BC Place has been around since the stadium opened back in 1983. There was always hope a major league team might come here. They did have some talk in the 90s of maybe the Mariners playing a couple of series up in Vancouver, but that never happened. And when baseball expanded, of course, we never got a team. The best we have ever done at BC Place when it's come to Major League Baseball 
is exhibition games, and it's been a while since we've had those. We always say you won't go very far in hockey without a good goalie. And when you have a goalie who's on a roll, you can win a lot of games that people think you wouldn't be able to win normally. That's one of the reasons the UBC Thunderbirds men's hockey team is in the Canada West Finals for the first time in 42 years. And that is going to do it. The UBC Thunderbirds with an upset for the ages as they knock off the number one seed, University of Alberta Golden Bears, and the T-Birds are going to the national tournament. We try to have as much fun as we can around here. And, uh, and going on a playoff run and beating Alberta, I mean, there's not much more fun than that. Except for the fact that you're playing for the Canada West Final and you're off to the Nationals. We're talking four decades since we've seen this. Yeah, I know our alumni are absolutely ecstatic right now. The, the support and the emails and texts that are coming through are really awesome. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy for those guys who have stuck with the program and, and kept in touch and given so much back. Uh, those guys really deserve it. They exchange it once again. Smith to the net. It hits green. Backhand try. They score. They've become the upset kings, but if we're being 100% honest here, there's no way the UBC Thunderbirds should be playing in the Canada West Final or the University Cup. That's not to slight what the T-Birds have done in the playoffs. It's just something you don't expect from a hockey team that struggled in the regular season, winning just 9 of 28 hockey games. What's it been like? Uh, it's been a whirlwind. I mean, the whole season was kind of up and down for us. And then just coming to playoffs, we had a good last weekend against Mount Royal. And it's just kind of, we all kind of believe in, in what we're doing right now, in our system, in our, in our teammates, and our coaches. And it's, it's been a great ride so far. Sanford across the Cox. Cox back to Soy. Oh my goodness! What a save by Toth! What makes this ride even more impressive is we're talking about student athletes. Last weekend they were winning games on the ice. Off it, they were cramming hard for upcoming exams. Because playing, practicing, and studying go hand in hand for the T Birds. UBC's academic version of a tape to tape pass. It's crazy to think. Uh that you can you can do both. Like we're we're preparing in uh, in Alberta with you know video sessions and group meetings, and then right after the meetings are done, the guys will flip open their their laptops and they'll they'll do their school for two hours. Um, it's it's impressive, but to be able to switch your head from the academics and the books to hockey that quickly is unbelievable. Maria Sharapova has retired from tennis after 19 years as a pro. She won five Grand Slam titles in her career. Won Wimbledon. One U.S. Open, one Australian Open, and two Frenches. You're seeing uh, footage from the French Open win in 2014. Injuries slowed her down, so did a suspension for using a banned substance. She was number one at the world at various times in her career, but the age of 32 is when she wants to walk away. Third highest money winner in women's tennis history, $38.7 million in prize money, and who knows what in endorsements. Here's your snow report for tonight. Whistler Blackcomb picked up one centimeter of new snow. Grouse 2, Cypress 6, and Sasquatch 2. Manning Park 1, Revelstoke 3. Fernie and Kicking Horse nothing new, but they should get some in the next 24 hours. Big White 2, Silver Star 2, Sun Peaks nothings. Apex 2 though. Mount Washington 1, Whitewater 3, Red Mountain 1, and Powder King is the winner at 15. As part of his dwindling royal duties, Prince Harry is speaking today at a sustainable tourism conference in Scotland. His mode of transportation there influenced by criticism last year when he flew by private jet. The prince will soon no longer use his royal highness title, telling today's conference host he wants to be on first name terms. He's made it clear that we are all just to call him 
Harry. So, ladies and gentlemen, please give a big, warm Scottish welcome to Harry. The Conference on Sustainable Tourism. Harry warning that by 2030, 1.8 billion people will take vacations. If we do not act and, in large part, get ahead of this inevitable surge, this massive increase will mean we see more of the world's most beautiful destinations closed or destroyed, more communities becoming overwhelmed. Meghan staying behind in North America with baby Archie is the Duke of Sussex's first appearance in the UK since he and Meghan learned they will not be able to use the term royal starting in April. That's when they officially stepped down from their royal duties. Harry and Meghan's last official royal appearance, an event that takes place every year with the Queen and other family members in March. From then on, he and Meghan are on their own. The beginning of the end, or perhaps the beginning of their new beginning. In terms of what the future looks like for Harry and Meghan, I think his team would readily admit that it is a work in progress. One thing that clearly is not going to change the amount of attention that he gets. Look at this, the front page of the Scottish Daily Mail picture of Prince Harry, the front page of the Scotsman, picture of Prince Harry. Keir Simmons, NBC News, Edinburgh, Scotland. He traveled by commercial flight and by train there, and apparently he carried his own bags. I'm gonna guess it was at least premium economy. Yeah, you might be right. He's the Harry, formerly known as Prince. He is. Not the artist. <laughs> Thanks for watching, everyone. Have a good night.